Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, we're still in Portland, Oregon, but I have a visitor, my honey bunny, Jeff. Husband Jeff has joined me tonight. Hi. How are you? Wonderful. Glad to be here. It's been a minute. Probably a few. Correct. Yeah. So, we're in Portland, and of course... When we think of Portland and we think of true crime and unsolved mysteries, the one that pops up the the most is the D.B. Cooper hijack, heist. Hijack is correct. Hijack. It was a hijack. Well, he hijacked. It was a combo. He's, he got away, well, he well, they took. They call it aerial piracy or something like that, I think, actually. Like, he was a pirate. Okay. And we'll get to that. As one of the last things I mentioned, there's there's a little bit of a notation on that. Okay. So, husband Jeff is here to discuss this infamous unsolved, because they never figured out who D.B. Cooper was. They had a few ideas, but none of them ever panned out. And It's been like 45 years. It's so. been a lot of years. Well, 1971. And it's my understanding now... That the FBI has actually officially closed the case. No, they didn't close it. What they did is, it was actually in 2016, they decided that they should put their efforts to more important cases. I can't remember what they called it. But they basically, they still have all of the evidence. They have like 60 volumes of evidence. They still have all that, and they're still accepting evidence, but they're not actively investigating it. Okay. So basically, I think they feel like this is an unsolvable case. So why waste their time? Okay. It's where they're at right now. So let's start from the beginning. Oh, the beginning. Yeah, that's a good place to start. It was the night before Thanksgiving, November 24th, 1971. Actually, it was the day because it was during the daytime. This middle-aged man walked into the Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland Airport, and he bought a ticket for $20 to a one-way ticket for $20 to Seattle. And the only real description is he was a middle-aged man and he had a black briefcase with him. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and he used cash for the one-way ticket on flight 305, which was having to be a 30-minute flight. So not long, you know, just real quick. When he was there in flight, he, he took a seat and he ordered a bourbon and soda. And the uh, people on the plane said he was... A, middle, a man in his mid-40s. He was wearing a business suit and a black tie and a white shirt. The plane departed Portland at 10 minutes to 3. And not long after takeoff, Dan the man handed a note to uh, one of the flight attendants, and her name was Florence Schaffner. 
So he handed her this note, and she just kind of figured it was a, a note with some lonely businessman's phone number on it, so she dropped it in her purse. And so he leaned over, and he said, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. He said that. He said he had a bomb. Crazy. Apparently, the note was written in really neat handwriting, all capital letters, and uh, we don't know exactly what it said because after she did whatever she did with it, he took it back. So he's got the note wherever he is or isn't. So she reads the note, and then what happens? So she reads it, and then she asked him to see the bomb. So he opened the briefcase, and inside of the briefcase, she said she saw eight red cylinders, four on the top and four on the bottom, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Those were her words. So he said he wanted $200,000 in negotiable American currency. I'm not quite sure what that means other than, like, just money I can spend. And four parachutes, two primary and two reserve. And he said he wanted a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane. She took the instructions to the pilots in the cockpit, and when she came back, he was wearing dark sunglasses. So I don't know why all of a sudden he thought he needed to put dark sunglasses on. That's kind of weird, but whatever. In the middle of the flight? Right, okay. in the middle of the flight. Why? Why the sunglasses? Well, maybe he was chilling with his bourbon and Coke. Yeah, maybe. What happened after that was the captain, his name was William A. Scott, he got in contact with the Seattle-Tacoma air traffic control people, told them what was going on, and then he got on the intercom on the on the flight, and he told the 35, there was 35 other passengers on the plane, and they were told that they were going to arrive in Seattle with delayed because of minor mechanical difficulty. And I don't know about you, but if I'm in a plane, I don't want to hear, uh, we're going to be late. Because uh, minor mechanical difficulties? What the heck does that mean? I would be worried. Well, I would think something wasn't right because if there were some difficulties, wouldn't we want to get on the ground ASAP? I would think that. But Okay. Nonetheless, the president of Northwest Orient Airlines, his name was Donald Nyrop. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but he authorized the payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate with Dan the Man. So the aircraft circled for a couple of hours around Puget Sound so that the police and the FBI could get everything that they needed together. So they basically stalled. Yeah. So there was another flight attendant. Her name was Tina Mucklow. And she says that he seemed to kind of know the local terrain and kind of know where he was at. And he, he even made a comment that that looks like Tacoma down there as the aircraft flew above it. So basically, he was, I mean, what, familiar with the area? Probably. There's Nobody really knows who he is, of course, or where he's from or, or what, but there's speculation that he must have been from the area because he even pointed out the McCord Air Force Base is about a 20-minute drive from the, the SeaTac Airport. So then he's, like, engaging as well. He's right, talking yeah, to people. He was, he's acting he was actually, cool. He's acting cool. Yeah, he seemed like, like to me, if I was there, I would think this is totally normal. This is Totally normal, dude. If I was one of the other passengers who don't know, who don't know what's going on, being I wouldn't be off. right. I would, I would be. You'd, we'd be no, we'd be clueless. We wouldn't have a clue. In fact, she described him as calm, polite, well spoken, and these are her words. So I am reading them because this is exactly what she said: calm, polite, and well spoken. Not at all consistent with the stereotypes, you know, the 
enraged, the hardened macho, criminals, macho criminals. I'm gonna take kill me you to all. Cuba. Okay, you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, that were popularly associated with air piracy at the time. He wasn't nervous. Okay, he seemed rather nice. She said, "He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. In fact, he even ordered a second bourbon and soda." Paid his drink tab. He paid his drink tab. He hijacked the plane, but he had he paid for his drinks. Right. And he attempted to give Mucklow the change. And it does, I, I don't know whether she took it or not, but. Okay. And he offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. So that's kind of strange. Well, I mean, if know. everyone stays calm. Maybe that's what he figures. It, it's to it's keep less of a calm. fight. It's less right. of a hassle. Right. So they meet their demands, his demands. Yes. <laughs> and what? They land? So at 5.24 p.m., he was, they, they told him that his, his demands had been met. At 5.39, more than an hour after the sun had went set, the aircraft landed at the SeaTac airport. And once the delivery was completed... He allowed all the passengers, flight attendant, her name was Florence. He allowed her, all the passengers, and the senior flight attendant, Alice Hancock, to leave. Okay. So he kept, I think there was two pilots and then one of the flight attendants. I think it was that, like Tina. that Mercow, yeah, okay. Tina. I think he kept Tina. And while the plane was refueling, he told the pilot where, where he wanted to go. He, and he told them, like, exact. So there's also... Speculation he was in the military, but also there's some speculation he was in the aviation field. He knew everything, every every detail, down to everything they needed to know to get to where he wanted to go. So Which was where? Mexico, Mexico. He told them to take a southeast course toward Mexico City at a minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, which turns out that's 100 knots or like around 115 miles an hour. So that's a slow-moving plane. I mean, that's just barely going fast enough to keep it moving. And he told them a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet. And he, he also told them that the landing gear needs to stay down in the takeoff landing position. And for whatever reason, the wing flaps needed to be lowered to 15 degrees. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that does. I have no clue. But that's what he told them. Oh, and he wanted the cabin to remain unpressurized. So the, the first officer, his name was William, Rat, Ratazak, I think it was Ratazak, William Ratazak, told Cooper that the aircraft's range at that with all those parameters is only about 1,000 miles. So they talked about it, and uh, they decided that they would land in Reno to refuel. So at 20 minutes to 8, the, they took off, and on the plane was just the cap- Captain Scott, Flight Attendant Mucklow, First Officer Radizak, a flight engineer, Harold Anderson, and unbeknownst to Cooper, two F-106 fighter aircraft from the Air Force Base followed behind the airliner, one above and one below. He couldn't see them, so he didn't know. Well, you said that it was after 8 o'clock? It was 20 minutes to 8 when they took off. Okay, and it was already, the sun had already set? Yeah, it was already dark. Okay, so, so he, it's he couldn't see them. Okay. But they, and they also flew far enough back so that or above and below, and you know how it is when you look out a window, you really can't see very far up or below when you look out the window on a plane. Well, yeah. So they stayed out of view. So the third, there was a third plane, a Lockheed T-33 trainer, 
it was on another mission, and they diverted it to follow. And he that plane followed behind them until it started running low on fuel, and it had to to turn back. After takeoff, Dan told the flight attendant to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit. Stay there. Don't come out. So from that point on, he's the only one on the plane. Everybody's in the cockpit. Nobody knows what's happening. And at uh, about 8 o'clock, so about 20 minutes after takeoff, there was a, a warning light that flashed in the cockpit. And apparently it, that meant that the aft stair apparatus had been activated. So in the back of these planes, there's some stairs that will go down. Obviously, probably not well, supposed what was his... How was he going to get off the plane? As part of the demand, he wanted four parachutes. Okay, so... He wanted two primary parachutes and two reserve parachutes. Okay. That was what he asked for, along with the cash. At about 8 o'clock, they get that light. means the stairs went down. And Radizak, who was the first officer, he offered to help him with that by the aircraft's intercom. And Dan said no. And that was the last time anybody had any communication with him. So about 13 minutes later, the back of the plane kind of shot up, like an upward movement. And it was, it was a large enough upward movement that the, the plane, or that the pilot had to take corrective actions to keep the, to, to level the flight out. So something happened. Something happened at 8, eight at a, they, they, they say at approximately 8.13. Okay. Something happened. They don't know what happened, but something did. Because everyone's in the cockpit. Yeah, everybody's in the cockpit. Nobody's talking to Dan. Nobody's heard from him since 8 o'clock. So at approximately 10.15, the pilot and the co-pilot landed the plane, which was a 727. Still had the door, the stair doors in the aft were still open. And they landed it at Reno at about 10.15. The FBI, the state police, the sheriff's deputies, like basically the whole gam mamma gamma stormed the plane, searched it. They determined that he wasn't there. He was gone. He departed. He had departed the plane. Okay. He left at some point. He jumped out. Well, that's that's speculation, but nobody knows. Okay. I mean, he had to have because he wasn't there, but nobody's 100% sure what happened. Because even the two fighter planes that were with them, they didn't see it. They didn't see anything happen. So nobody's really a hundred percent sure. But you don't, you can't just disappear. So he had to have jumped out because there are also two of the parachutes were missing. And turns out one of the parachutes that he took <laughs> was a dummy parachute. So he wasn't too familiar with parachutes then. It, it seems it seems that way, yes. So Be he it sounds like he had some sort of background with aviation knowledge, yes. but you had mentioned earlier potentially military. Well, there was talk of that, but if you're if you're choosing a dummy parachute, which is to my knowledge doesn't work, right? And it and and everything I read said that it was clearly marked, you know, for training or. A dummy something, parachute, right. Something, you know, it didn't say dummy parachute, but so it was it, clearly marked. He didn't understand or know that. Right. So, I mean. And and the other thing is, the one other reserve parachute that he did get, so he took one main and the dummy reserve, and the other reserve, he actually opened up and cut out some of the, some of the cords out of it, 
the assumption there is that he used those cords to tie the duffel bag of money either to himself or to the harness of the parachute or something. I, it, nobody really knows. So they landed at 10.15, like I said. They stormed the plane. They searched. Didn't find him. So they started their investigation. The FBI did find some fingerprints in the plane that were not identified. So I'm assuming everything I read, it didn't really say. So I'm assuming they fingerprinted all the passengers that were on the plane and all the crew. And they found 66 unidentified fingerprints. So I, it, and I don't know if they were 66 of the same fingerprint. I don't have that information, but seems like a lot. They they also found his black clip-on tie, his tie clip. So one of the first suspects suspects that they actually found was an Oregon man, and he had a minor police record. And guess what his name was? D. D. B. Cooper. His name was D. B. Cooper. After they interviewed him and checked on everything, he was ruled out. However, a local reporter ran with it before he realized that that guy was actually ruled out. He published his story, and uh, another, the AP Press picked it up. They published some stories using that name, D.B. Cooper, and so it's forever been D.B. Cooper, even though D.B. Cooper was apparently a real person, and he didn't do it. But the culprit... Went by the name of Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper. Right. Dan Cooper. So So the media slightly got that wrong somehow, some way. Somehow some that AP one reporter cross, that yeah. one reporter came across that they were interviewing this D B Cooper guy and he ran with the story and it stuck. So he'll forever be known as D B Cooper. So initially they they went through they went through they went by the, the pilot's flight path and the fact that they had that upward movement at 813 and they kind of put all that together and they got an area of where they thought they the jump thought happened. the jump happened okay and uh the landing zone would have been in the area of the southernmost side of mount st helens is where they think he would have landed so what they did is got a bunch of people together they went out there and searched, and they didn't find anything. I mean, they had everybody out there, and they didn't find anything. I'm assuming that there's a lot of snow and, and ice and all that kind of stuff in in Washington. Okay. Near Mount St. Helens. All right. Well, so it it's November, so I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So so in the spring when thi- of 1972, when things kind of um, thawed out, you know, the snow melted and whatever, uh, the FBI got together 200 Army soldiers from the, the Fort Lewis, which is right in that area, and some Air Force people, National Guard, civilian volunteers, and they conducted another ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties. And they did that for 18 days in, in March of 1972. And then another 18 days in April of 1972. They had uh, Marine salvage companies checking the rivers and stuff, looking for maybe maybe a body or the bags of money or the parachutes or something because, you know. Basically I mean, your physical evidence, you mean. Right, they're looking for So were they dredging, they like, the rivers and the lakes? 
don't really know that they were dredging it. Okay. I know that they were just, they had a marine salvage company. Didn't really, I never really saw what they were actually doing. Okay. So they might be, maybe they had divers in the water okay. or something looking for this stuff. This, uh, this was, it, this ended up being the, the biggest and most extensive and intensive manhunt in U.S. history at that time. And about, about a month later after they did all this, the FBI actually put out a list of the serial numbers to all of like the local financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and anywhere else that, that did a lot of business with cash so that they could try to find these these bills. So give them a heads up that this could be potentially right. their, their right. <laughs> ransom. So here's a little thing that, that I found interesting. In 1972, there was two guys that had counterfeit $20 bills, and they printed them with the uh, Cooper serial numbers, and somehow they swindled $30,000 from a news reporter to get a f- uh, uh, interview with this person who they said was D.B. Cooper. So they used the numbers that the FBI They used the out number that the FBI put out to make fake ones to pay, to get $30,000 from some... To get, they get, they, I sounds like they offered, I'll give you my interview if you give me this money. Right. That's probably what they did. Yeah, it sounds about right. However, later, it was determined after they talked some more to the, to the captain of the plane that the original landing or landing zone or whatever you want to call it was was incorrect. They ch- so they they were searching the wrong. Oh, you mean spot. the flight path? Yeah, the flight, flight path, path was a little bit different, and even just you know an eighty degrees difference or like not a very big difference in that flight path is going to change the landing. Of where he would have landed, basically the the jump triangle. It's gonna ch- it's gonna be huge. Okay, it'll be huge on on. So on they the recalculated. Difference. They went so back. They, they right. They went back and they found a new area based on the new uh, information. Right. And they started searching that. It was southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of the Washougal River. Okay. I don't know where that's at because I've I used to live. In Oregon, but I don't know where the Washougal River is. That that would be it's probably near the Oregon Washington Oregon border somewhere. So they 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 searched that area and could not find anything as well. They didn't find anything, and some of the investigators think that in 1980, the eruption of Mount St. Helens, and this m- is possibly why they can't find anything now, as well or haven't been able to since then, is because Mount St. Helens erupted and. Destroyed, the area destroyed, of the ash. right? Destroyed everything. Well, yeah, the lava, the lava, the ash, the mud flows, all the flooding the, of the right. rivers. Okay, destroyed everything. That makes, if they have their calculations correct, yeah, that it's a possibility. I mean, yeah, it remains unsolved for several different reasons. Yeah, and I think that's probably a major one. I don't know, but so, so there were th- on the plane. The FBI recovered three pieces of. Physical evidence, major physical evidence. They got his black clip-on tie, a mother-of-pearl tie clip, and eight filter-tipped uh, rally cigarette butts. But they lost those at some, at some time after, afterwards. So the FBI lost 
the Very cigarette important. butts. Yes, okay. they, those were probably the most important because maybe they could have got DNA off of them. Well, they didn't know about DNA in seventy one. No, but, but if if they right, would have had know, them, still, if they had it now, yeah, you know, twenty one yeah. and me or twenty three and me, right? They might be able to find them. Isn't that how they caught the Golden State Killer? That's exactly how they caught the Golden yeah. State Killer. 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 So in in nineteen seventy eight, somebody found printed placard with the instructions for lowering the aft stairs. It was a deer hunter near a logging road, and it was it was in the area where he would have... The second triangle? The second triangle, yeah. Okay. So it was a, a placard from one of those planes, from a 727, right? telling you how to lower those the Which stairs. Which is why he didn't need help from the guy. Yeah, I was, I'm assuming he had the instructions. Now, chances are that's not commonplace. I mean, you can't go to the 711 and... By the instructions, so. No, so I'm sure he didn't have, I'm sure they were probably printed, you know, because flight attendants need that stuff, so they're probably well, in a book or something. could have gone through the, the back area and found right. it, yes. Yeah, okay. he could have went through the back of the plane in, in their area and found that stuff. So we're going to, we're going to move on now to 1980, February 10th of 1980. There was an eight-year-old boy who was with his family. They were on vacation at the Columbia River. In February? Okay. This you know, maybe they maybe they maybe their family likes to fish. It's a little shady, but okay. Maybe their family likes to fish. Again in February? Yeah, my dad used to go fishing 365 days a year and I had to go with him. But they were at a beachfront known as Tina Bar and it's 9 miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, which is also in their little triangle. And the kid found three packets of $20 bills. And it was later confirmed that they were the right serial numbers. So he found three packets of $20 bills. Now, apparently when they when they bundled all these, they put them in bundles of 100. So he found two full bundles of 100 and then one bundle of 90. What happened to those other 10? Nobody knows. There's a lot of different theories about the money because some of it was a little bit, what do you call that? Uh, you know the word I'm looking for. Decomposed. Some of it was a little decomposed, but not all of it was. So, oh, so... Basically worn down, right? Degenerate, right? And it was wrapped like with, disintegrated, right? And it was wrapped with rubber bands. So the, a lot of the a lot of the top investigators don't think that it was like it didn't fall in the water and then get washed up on the shore because after spending so many so, so long in the water, it, it would have deteriorated more. Deteriorated more. The rubber bands would have broken up, broken up, and then it just would all spread out. So they think it was either fell on the beach or was buried on the beach. So they don't know if maybe he was on that beach and buried it there, you know, because he knew he couldn't spend it or whatever. Nobody really knows. They just know that they found those three bundles of money there. Uh, A more recent analysis of the bills suggested that they weren't submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in 1971. They found some, I'm not sure what a diatom is, but they found them on there. It's algae. Algae. Yes. Okay, you know that. Good. So what they found on the bills was diatoms that bloom during springtime. So they think the money was there for several months after the hijacking. So maybe not originally because, again, it's November. Right. And if the algae blooms in the springtime. Yeah, yeah, that happened in in, in the the hijacking was in November. November. Algae blooms, algae blooms in springtime, spring and then it got covered up. And it was found in winter again. It was found in February, right. Oh, so that, that, but it was found like 10 years later, nine years later. About eight, yeah. 
eight, eight, nine years later. Seven and a half, I think. Yeah. Not even that. So nobody really knows how it got there or why it was there. And if it's a beach front, it would have been found sooner had it been placed there sooner or buried there sooner. So kind of, I mean, there's a lot of incomplete factors here. Yeah, there's a lot. Okay. Nobody really knows. All there's right. a lot of. So in 1986, after, you know, because we live in America, finders, keepers, right? Right. So in 1986, after the, some negotiations, the recovered bills, they divided them equally between Ingram, the kid that found them, and Northwest Orient's insurer. Uh, the FBI did keep 14 of the bills for evidence, and the kid sold 15 of his bills at an auction in 2008 for $37,000. 2008, I don't think he's a kid. Well, he, he's not anymore, but... He made how much? $37,000 off for of 15 $20 bills. From the D.B. Cooper heist. From the D.B. Cooper heist. All right. I guess, I guess, that's, a, I guess that's a thing. People I, want money from the D.B. Cooper heist. It's infamous money. Yeah, but it's not worth any more than the $20 that it's worth. Not if it's associated you imagine, with something. Imagine if you paid $37,000 I would those? pay $37,000. Well, I wouldn't either, but could you imagine if you did? But he sold 15 of them, so it wasn't. Could you imagine, though, if you did? You're looking at least a minimum of 2000 to right. three, 2000 to between two and 3000 each. Right. So, so in 2007, they did get a partial DNA match from one of the, from the tie, from his tie. But they don't, like, again, they don't have anything to compare it to, and it was only a partial DNA, so they, they did, couldn't really do anything with it. Okay. So about this time, this was when the cigarettes that they lost probably would have been. This, yeah, the cigarettes that they lost probably would have been very handy. They would probably would have been able to get more. So did they of ever, I mean, you mentioned earlier the D.B. Cooper guy who was just a coincidence, same name. Well, it was my understanding that they did actually have basically a list of about 800 suspects. I don't remember it being that many. I do remember reading about a select few of them, but none of them, from what I read, none of them panned out at all. So, like I said before, it was my understanding that they had like a slew, about 800 potential suspects for this. And it's interesting because the the variety of different suspects range from people who have had past experiences in hijacking planes. In fact, one of them, by the name of Richard McCoy Jr., basically staged a copycat to what Cooper did. And, you know, he demanded... He, he got on the plane with a hand grenade, or it was actually a paperweight that resembled a hand grenade, and guns that were unloaded, and he demanded, you know, four parachutes, just like Cooper did. He demanded $500,000, and, you know, he basically mimicked what D.B. Cooper did, and so he was one of their primary suspects. And it's interesting because some of the the pictures of the people that they have in their profile, some of them actually do match very close Look like him. to the sketches that to were provided. Yeah. But to me, I think the guy that really stuck out is a gentleman by the name of William J. Smith. And 
part of the reason why he, I mean, he's a, it's an older picture that they have of him, but if he was to have aged, you know, to me, he would have been pr- very close to the the pictures. So it, it's interesting because in, at one point in time, in, in looking, you know, just briefly glancing at different aspects of this, you know, unsolved mystery, at one point in time, they even had like a, a transgender man, okay, who who went by the name of Barbara, but his his name was Robert, Robert Dayton, but he also went by the the name Barbara Dayton. So it's very interesting, and again, who knows what the cigarettes would have told them, and, and if, honestly, on some level, they probably didn't take the, the evidence of the cigarettes if they couldn't lift off fingerprints from it, and not understanding or realizing how valuable DNA would play later in crime solving, you know, to them, it's not as a valuable piece as perhaps the tie. I, I still think it's a little bit irresponsible of them. They did collect them, right? And they and lost them. Absolutely, is I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying in the grand scheme of things, at that point in time, that's not the first thing if they can't get fingerprints off of it, because right. that's all they have, right? In terms of being able to properly process this physical evidence. Yep. Well, speaking of the evidence, in 2009, the FBI let out that they had a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, and he assembled a team of citizen sleuths, they called them. And it it was just a bunch of people, and they just got together with with each other, and they went over all the evidence that they had, and they were able to do a bunch of chemical analysis of, like, the tie and the other things, the tie clip and whatever, all the evidence they had. And what they found was they think that he, they found traces of different metal elements on his tie and in his, on his tie, his tie clip. I don't remember. They found those traces of metal, which were cerium and strontium sulfide. And those were very rare, rarely used in nineteen in the 70s. And they were mostly used in a Boeing supersonic transport development project. So they think that he was maybe possibly a Boeing employee because those things... Are found in... Uh, that's where like they were found. And rarely found... And that's what where they were found used? in okay. the seventies. That's where they found those things. They also found titanium pieces, uh, particles on his his tie. But again, those things are all f- they all tied back to Boeing. So they think he was a Boeing employee, but they don't know for sure. Nobody really knows. Well, with his knowledge that he expressed during the flight, I mean, obviously he was familiar. Well, that's why I was saying the area. I was saying that it's, they think it's possible that he might have been an Air Force veteran, and the only thing I can, I can, uh, the only thing I can say to that is that they they say that because he correctly identified that hey, that Air Force base is like twenty minutes from here, and most people, well, most civilians at that time didn't know that that base was twenty minutes from where they were. I, well, he now I think everybody knows it. 
He didn't know the difference between a regular parachute and a dummy parachute. That, that he may not have been a parachuter. Well, still could have been a, in the Air to, Force. To me, the guy was methodical. Okay, mm-hmm. he knew his calculations. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew how to get there, but he obviously knew something about aviation. Correct. I maybe not parachuting. But no, obviously aviation. not. If he's grabbing the dummy parachute, but that could still be. You could still be an Air Force veteran and not know about, or a military veteran and not know about pa- parachutes. I was in the Navy. I don't know about parachutes. Well, then chances are he would have known that, you know, as a military person, they would have sent fighter uh, pilots up to monitor the plane. So, I mean, but the, no, nobody knows what he was thinking or everybody right. asked him, I'm sure. Right. Okay. So, he's gone. Some of the money has been found. It's been 45 plus years now, and the FBI is like, we're going to start allocating our resources elsewhere, and that's where the mystery stands. Yes, there's one more thing. Okay. So we talked about the aft air, the aft stairs, right? They were, up until the 70s, 72, I think is when they changed it, you could lower those stairs in flight, but because of... Not only his, but there was others in the relative time frame there. Hijacking. Hijackings, yes. Air piracy, whatever you want to call it. They made this contraption on the plane to where if it's moving at a certain speed, it locks those stairs shut so that they cannot Be lowered open again. Okay. while it's in flight. Guess what they called it? The DB Cooper. The Cooper vane. The Cooper vane. Okay. So it keeps the it keeps those stairs from opening up. So also, in 1976, because you got to worry about the statute of limitations, it runs out at some point on on crime on crime, right? So in 1976, they started talking about this. Hey, what are we going to do if this if this um, statute of limitations goes? So what they did is they indicted. John Doe, because they didn't know who he is. So they indicted John Doe so that they have the case. So if they ever actually find him now, they can still prosecute him because it's still an open indictment. Okay. To, to go around the whole... To go around the whole statute of limitations. All right. No, if they find the guy, if he's even still alive... That they're not using resources. Right, and I mean, that's the other thing. If he was in his mid-40s... He's like... 90, 90 years now, old by yeah. now, so he's probably not even alive. Uh, huh. I do know the pilot died uh, in 2001, so they can't talk to him anymore. No, I'm sure they got all they could out of him. Right. And I, I'm not sure on the flight attendants or anybody else if they're still alive or they died, but most of them are probably really old or dead. Right. Just like him, really old or dead. And probably couldn't rely on their memories anyways. Probably not. Well, all right. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for bringing us the D.B. Cooper Unsolved Mystery on the Northwest Orient Flight 305 out of Portland, Oregon. Yes. So this still remains a mystery. Yep. And this is probably one of those that's going to remain a mystery forever. Forever. The only way that, the only way I think... I'm not I'm not a detective. I don't know nothing. But the only way I think they're ever going to solve this is the same way they did with the Golden State Killer. If somebody in his family 
submitted a DNA thing, and they've got his partial DNA, and they can say, hey, look, that's a partial match, then maybe they can start looking at that person's family and be like, he's the only one that's unaccounted for, and he's, hmm. But well, I don't knows? know if they can do that with the partial. So I, I mean, don't know. Honestly, if he did make it, the best physical evidence is the remaining cash. Yeah, the rest of it. Where is the rest of it? Right. There's. So, how much is that? It's uh, they found a little less 2000, than a little less than fourth, a little less than six thousand dollars. So there's yeah. still a hundred and ninety-four thousand yeah. dollars out there somewhere, unless, unless, like we said, unless it burned up or got covered up with Mount Saint Helens. Mount Saint Helens. We'll never know. We'll never know. All right. That is all we have for you tonight. On to business. I have a Facebook page, and if you are interested or curious and you'd like to join, send me a request. But until then, if you have a place that you would like to see where their dark corners are or have a specific tourist attraction of mine, you can send me an email at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. Final thought, husband Jeff? No, I just... This whole thing is trip to me. I, I don't know how, I don't know what they're ever going to do. I don't think we'll ever know. So it's just. I think someday his family member is going to come forward with the money. You think so? If you think one alive. of his family members if has he got the money? survived with the dummy parachute that's not supposed to open. Yeah, well, it wouldn't open. <laughs> All right. But until next time, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. Thank you.